chapter 3. And I'm going to remember, um, I've been reminded several times uh, by a dear brother, uh, to do something I've never done uh, ever since I started a YouTube channel long ago. Um, click the subscribe button. <laughs> Um, like, like the videos and leave a comment, um, and click on the subscribe button. Okay, I did it. Uh, I've noticed all, everything else I ever watch on YouTube, all the different channels I subscribe to, they always say that, click the like button, click on subscribe, and I, I guess there's a notification bell or something like that. So if you'd like to always uh, make sure you don't miss any of the programs, uh, please do click the subscribe button and like these videos and comment on them and share them on social media. Um, and I'll never see them because I'm not on social media. So there you go. I uh, did my duty. All right. Galatians chapter three. And I want to press on in this because this, the message of Galatians, uh, the message of the gospel is the only hope that the world has at any given moment, no matter what's going on politically. I mean, even if America uh, was uh, doing much better than it is uh, economically, uh, the only hope that a nation has is always uh, going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to make sure that that stays front and center in all that we do um, in our church life and in our personal life and in our own hearts. We want to make sure that we understand and love the one true gospel. So let's press on with Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. We, we uh, ended uh, at the end of chapter 2 last time. So Paul begins here by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. And uh, that term that's used there, I'm not a toy. Foolish, ignorant, he, he tells them. You ignorant Galatians, you ignoramuses. And then he uses a, an interesting term, um, to bewitch, uh, that, that verb, um, baskino. He says, who has bewitched you? Who has put you under a spell? And it's almost like someone... Uh, came along and took over your brain um, and, and made you stop believing the truth that I taught you before. In fact, let's look up Baskino in uh, Bauer, Donker, Art, and Gingrich here. <laughs> yeah, to exert an evil influence through the eye, to, to bewitch, okay, um, to, to do that, to exert an evil influence. Who has exerted an evil influence on you, he, he says here. Oh, foolish Galatians, you ignorant Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Paul is genuinely upset because they were allowing something to be added to faith in Christ as the means of justification, as the means of being right with God. And he asks, who's bewitched you? Who, who did this to you? And then he makes this, this remarkable statement. Um, before whose eyes, before whose eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And why is he saying it like that? He said, who has bewitched you? I preached Christ crucified before you. In other words, what Christ did is the only way you can get into heaven. By resting on that, by relying on that, by your confidence being in him, not in anything else. So why, who bewitched you from that? Who, who pulled you away from simple trust in the finished work of the crucified Christ? Who has done this to you? You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you who has exerted this evil diabolical influence on you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes jesus christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified he said i put him up on a billboard before you i i preached christ crucified as the only means of your salvation 
So why do you think circumcision is going to help finish his work? Why do you think these other things are going to play a role in getting you into heaven? And then he says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Okay, so were you saved? Are are you indwelt by the spirit because you obeyed God's law? Because of works of the law, whether they're dietary, ceremonial, or moral, did, did you receive the Spirit by doing stuff or simply by hearing the gospel and then believing it? By the hearing of faith. And of course, that's a rhetorical question. They received the Holy Spirit by the hearing with faith. By hearing, by akues, by hearing pistaos, of faith. Meaning they heard the gospel and believed it. That's what that means. You hear the preaching of Christ crucified, and then you believe. That's how you're justified. That's how you receive the Holy Spirit. And it's that simple. That's the end of it. That's the whole message. That's how you receive the Holy Spirit. By believing the gospel, not by works of the law. And he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? And there he, he asks him again. He uses that, that word, Are you that ignorant? Are you that foolish? Are you that without understanding? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Boy, what a what a great way! Um, but the Holy Spirit, right there, captured all of man's attempts to mix work, works with grace, or to, to to put temporal qualifiers in front of justification. Uh, having begun by faith alone in Christ alone, are you now going to be made perfect by fruit? I mean, just substitute the various nuances that people use today. And it's condemned by this verse of scripture. Are you so foolish? Having begun with faith in Christ, are you now going to get into heaven by your fruit? Are you now going to be finally saved by what you do? Are you going to be made perfect by the flesh? Is that how perfection comes? No, it's always by faith. It is by faith, as Paul says in Romans 1, 17, from first to last. It is from faith to faith. From faith to faith. It's never by works, never by obedience, Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh, by, by what you do? Okay, that's another rhetorical question. The answer is no. You can't be made perfect by, by what you do or by works or by anything of the kind. Okay, verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, what is he talking about here? Probably because Christians were persecuted almost everywhere they went, either by Jews and eventually later by Romans. A lot of them suffered greatly. But if they're not believing the gospel, then their suffering's in vain, isn't it? I mean, you can claim to be a Christian and your faith's in Christ plus something else. If that's the truth, then all your suffering's in vain. Because you're not really a believer then. You're not really, you haven't really believed in Jesus Christ. If belief in Christ um, is not belief in Christ alone for our salvation, for the whole of our salvation, then if you suffer... For a false religion, it's, it's in vain. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see how those two things are antithetical opposites in his thinking? When it comes to justification, when it comes to being right with God and having a right to go to heaven and being um, once and for all declared righteous in the sight of God, there's works of the law and then there's Hearing the gospel and believing it, what he calls the hearing of faith, akues pistaos, by the hearing of faith. It can't be both. 
It can't be both. And that's why he says, having begun with faith alone, are you now going to get into heaven by your works? He's, he's criticizing the idea that, well, yeah, initially, initially it's all by grace. It's all by faith alone, not by anything you do. But then there's these other things that we do along the way that, uh, that save us and justify us at the end or something like that. And he's trying to think of everything he can to make sure you, you don't walk away without understanding the one who supplies the spirit to you, the one who gives you the Holy Spirit and does miracles through the uh, people that have those gifts in those apostolic churches, does he do that? Does he give the spirit to people and save and justify them and give them gifts for use in the church? Does he do that by the works of the law, by their obedience to law, or by the hearing of faith, by hearing the gospel and believing it? Well, clearly that's another rhetorical question. The answer is by the hearing of faith. Okay, now... I wonder, how would some people answer that? That's a very similar question to, to what, you know, for example, Doug Wilson was asked. Is continuing in goodness, is doing goodness, do, doing good works, the fruit or the cause of our salvation? Yes. I could see him answering this question. So he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Yes. <laughs> same, same concept, same question. And the answer is not yes, because it can't be both those things. And Paul's thinking it can't be both those things. In the thinking of God, it can't be both those things. It's the hearing of faith. It's faith in Christ, because Christ has achieved this. Nothing that we do, not our works. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. See what he's talking about? He's talking about the gospel here. Our justification. He believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He didn't do works. He didn't obey this or obey that. He believed in that, and that alone is how he was justified before God. Now, did, did Abraham go on to do a lot of things for God and to do a lot of good works? Yes, he did. Did any of those good works justify him before God? No. Was his profession to know God um, justified? Was that profession justified by his works? Yeah. Was he as a person justified by works? No, you can't be. Okay, listen to the text again. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And that's, that's not a question you can say yes to. It's an either-or question. It's either works of the law that save us and give us the Spirit and bring us into fellowship with God, or it's hearing the gospel and believing it. It can't be both. And Paul's thinking it absolutely positively cannot be both. And he points out, the Old Testament teaches, it was not by works, but by belief that Abraham was justified. He believed in the promise of God, and when it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's the same with us today, as Paul um, explains so clearly in Romans chapter 4. Uh, it, is not, it was not written just for his sake, but for ours, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reckoned righteous too. Okay? Not by works, not by righteous deeds that we do, not by anything wrought in us or done by us but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, reckoned to us, that term uh, logizomai, imputed to us and received by faith alone, not by works of the law, but by believing, by the hearing of faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's the citation of Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 seems to have been Paul's favorite Old Testament verse on the gospel because it's one of the clearest. There's no works in view there. There's no deeds of piety there's no future justifications. There's no uh, final salvation by fruit. It's he believed the promise and he was accounted as righteous. Once a person has been accounted by God as righteous when they believe, that person's saved, justified. They cannot possibly run the, the risk of being anything but saved and justified before God. They have a legal right to go to heaven now. Okay, verse 7. 
Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. What, what does that mean? Those who are of faith and those who are of the works of the law. Those who are of faith, people that are relying on Christ to get them into heaven. Those who are of the works of the law, people who are relying upon their own obedience to get them into heaven. Now, what about people who say they're relying on Christ and their fruit, and, and, and they have faith in future grace that God will bear more fruit through them? Paul's going to address that later in Galatians chapter 5, and he's going to say, Christ will be of no benefit to you, and you're a debtor to keep the whole law. The moment you add anything, anything to faith in Christ as the means of justification, you have stated by doing that, that what Christ did is not sufficient to save you. You have stated by relying on something else, something in addition to him, to get you into heaven, you have stated by doing that, what he did was not enough to do it. It's not enough to pull it off. That's why Paul says, therefore, no, no, genoskata. You know this, be you sure. It only those who are of faith, only those who are trusting in Christ, are sons of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Okay, and that's a citation uh, from Genesis chapter 12. And Paul's point there is saying that Abraham understood that what this meant was one of his descendants was going to be the seed of the woman promised way back in Genesis 3.15 by God. That one of his descendants would be the one in whom all the nations would be blessed as opposed to cursed. Because in God's way of reckoning and thinking about the human race, everyone's either cursed, they're under, under God's curse because of their law-breaking, or if they're in Christ, they are blessed of God. And they always will be blessed of God because they have Christ's righteousness covering them. And they also have the satisfaction of God's justice for all their sins by his cross work. God justifies the Gentiles by faith because they're descendants of Adam, just like we are, and the Jews by faith. And God preached the gospel to Abraham, telling him, all the nations will be blessed in you. And that's from Genesis chapter 12. All the nations will be blessed in you. This is one, another reason, one of many reasons, I believe, in covenant theology. What, what did Abraham, what was his faith in? Christ, the coming of Jesus. In John eight fifty six. Jesus himself said, Abraham was looking forward to my day. Indeed, he saw it and was glad. Okay, verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, you see how he he's, keeps saying, therefore, therefore, so then, so then, only those who have faith in Christ, those are the ones that are blessed, as opposed to curse. It's not those who are doing works to try to save themselves, because the, if they're doing that, they're demonstrating they don't understand who Jesus is or what he did. Only those who have faith in Christ are blessed with Abraham the believer. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Okay, so Paul's using this, this mode of, of, of expression here. He keeps talking about those who are of faith and those who are of the works of the law. What does he mean by that? Those who are of faith, that's me. I would consider myself, I'm, I'm not a person who is of the works of the law. I'm not trusting in my law keeping to get me into heaven. I'm of faith. I, I am trusting in Christ alone. And you think about what are you relying on to get you into heaven? My answer is Jesus. Well, don't you believe in sanctification? Yes. So isn't that going to play some role? In, into, in the, don't you make a distinction between a right to go to heaven and the actual possession of eternal life? Yeah, you can make that distinction. Uh, but we don't gain possession of eternal life on the legal grounds 
of our works or anything like that. Those who go to heaven will live a life of good works which God ordained for them uh, to walk in. But those works do not, cannot, will not play a role in getting them in any way, shape, or form into heaven. Our entrance into heaven is supplied solely by Christ. And if you're relying on your future works or your um, fruit or anything like that to get you into heaven, you are of the works of the law here. Meaning Christ will be of no benefit to you. You can say you believe in Jesus and Jesus makes it all possible. What Paul's going to go on to say in Galatians 5, if you try to mix works with grace, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Okay? So as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Why? Anyone who's relying on their own law keeping to get them into heaven, like, for example, the rich young ruler that Jesus talked to. Uh, He said, I've kept all this stuff since I was a kid. No, you haven't. You've broken every one of God's commandments every day of your entire life. But he was relying, he was relying on his own law-keeping to gain eternal life. And what, what's his status? He's under the curse. Think of John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has life, has everlasting life. But he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides upon him. Why is that? Why does the wrath of God abide upon someone like that? Because they're under God's curse. They are of the works of the law. The law has no saving power in it for a Christian. Intrinsically, the law is good. It's holy and righteous and just, and it's a blessing from God that we have it. But when it comes to our justification, when it comes to getting into heaven, the law is of no value to us. It can't help us get into heaven because we all fall short of it. That's why Paul says, as many as are of the works of the law, anyone who is, that, that Greek term, hasoi, I remember writing a flashcard for that, as, as great as, as many as, as much as. This is talking about people. As many people, no matter who they are, what their ethnic genealogy or descent is from, if they are relying upon their works of the law to get them into heaven, they're under the curse. Why? Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things, which are written in the book of the law, to do them. What is the summation of God's law? Matthew 5.48 Be perfect, therefore as God is perfect. That's not good news to a sinner. To a fallen son or daughter of Adam, that is not good news. The law has no intrinsic saving value to a fallen sinner. We love the law. We uphold the law. We don't nullify the law as Christians because we're justified by faith alone apart from the law. And because the righteousness by which we get into heaven has nothing to do with our performance, our law keeping, or anything of the kind. We love God's law, but that law cannot help you get into heaven. Keeping the law cannot help you get into heaven in any way. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. As many who die thinking they're good people, they're under God's curse. Because the law requires you to do everything in it. James 2.10, anyone who stumbles at one point of the law is guilty of all. So if you sin once, if you sin once, the law can't help you get into heaven. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, that's, that's uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it's 27, verse 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that's right at the very end of a whole chapter of, of curses, where these the curses of the covenant would be read, and all the people, the congregation of Israel, would all shout, Amen, uh, in response to all the curses, all of the pronouncements of God's judgment against those who don't keep the law. Okay, so the law of God shows us our sin, and it drives us, to Jesus Christ to put our faith in him alone for our salvation because the law cannot help us be right with God. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law 
in the sight of God is evident. And notice he doesn't say by the um, by the ceremonial laws or, or, by, by, or just by circumcision. He says the law, the whole thing. No one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God, in the sight of God, for the just shall live by faith. The righteous man, the just man, lives, gains eternal life by faith, is what that's saying. Okay, not by works, not by law-keeping, but by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4, that's another passage Paul likes to quote. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Okay, so the law offers this one promise. If you do it, you can have eternal life. <laughs> Since Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that option's off the table. It's still true, though. It's, it's still a true statement. The man who does the law can live by it can go to heaven by it now is there anyone that does that no why because adam sinned and we're born in this world we come into the world with a sinful nature we come into the world corrupt holy and corrupt we come into the world unable to do that which god commands us to do the law is not of faith in other words its promise does not come to us by faith but rather by works but the whole point is if you are relying on the law you're under the curse because the law, the law requires absolute perfection and there's no one who is perfect no one does all things in the book of the law no one does that's why we have to be justified by christ by faith in him and solely on the basis of what he did received and appropriated by faith in christ alone and then this great gospel verse verse 13 christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse who pair hamon in behalf of us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree this verse right here and reading leon morris's exposition of it in the apostolic preaching of the cross is a great book uh, where he goes through and does a study of the key terms related to the cross work of christ this verse sold me on limited atonement many years ago i was sitting in the the uh, lobby of of a um what hotel was that the hyatt i think the hyatt hotel was the one connected to the u.s bank tower when i was a programmer there i used to go over there and, and read on my lunch hour i remember where i was sitting when i read his exposition of this christ has redeemed us from the law from the curse of the law having become a curse in our behalf that is a true substitutionary atonement every individual for whom jesus did that will go to heaven he bore the curse there exists no judicial grounds for their condemnation. If Jesus did that for someone, they are redeemed from the curse. They will, at some point in their life, be effectually called and brought to Christ. And there's just no way of getting around it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Redeemed, that, that term redeemed refers to the buying back of prisoners of war. When a king would go up against another king and would lose a battle and a bunch of his soldiers would be taken prisoner. He'd have to redeem them. He'd have to pay a price to redeem those soldiers from bondage. Christ redeemed us. Everyone he died for, he redeemed. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, so we receive the promise of the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not by works of law, not by what we do, but through faith. And then he goes into a, a key theological point. So many people wondered about this at the time of Christ, and people still have trouble with this today. What role does the law play? 
since God made the promises to Abraham that Paul is interpreting to be the very gospel themselves, way back in Genesis 12, that's 430 years before God gives the law through Moses. So what role does the law play? And it's very clear what, what is said here about it. L- listen to verse 15, Galatians 3:15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So if you've got you know, your real estate agent and you have a contract on the house and everybody agrees to the terms and everybody has signed off, this is the deal, this is the price, this is what everyone's getting, this is what you're going to do, this is what I have to do, here's what the buyer does, here's what the seller does, and it's all been signed, you can't annul it or add to it later. You can't change it later. Okay. Now to Abraham and his seed, meaning Christ, were the promises made. He doesn't say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Okay, so God made a promise to Abraham. That promise is going to be realized by faith. All the people who are the beneficiaries of that promise will receive the benefits of that promise of eternal life by faith alone. The law hasn't even been given yet through Moses. It's still 430 years in the future at this point. Verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. See, the Jewish people misunderstood the purpose of the law. They thought it was the means by which they would be saved and justified before God. That's not why God gave them the law. And Paul's going to actually bring it up. What purpose does the law have? And he, he tells us exactly why it was given to us. It was given to Israel. But Paul's point here is, the giving of the law, hundreds of years after God made these promises to Abraham, does not modify those promises. Just like a real estate contract, once it's drawn up and notarized and signed and everyone has agreed to everything, you can't add to it later. You can't arbitrarily just change it later. And that's the argument Paul's making. Even if men do this, you can't do this, much less God. The promise God made to Abraham was always going to be realized only by faith and not by works. Okay, verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's not a promise then. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Exactly the same thing is said in Romans 4, 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, meaning if those who are relying on their own law keeping are heirs of eternal life, faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Galatians 3, 18 says pretty much exactly the same thing. If the inheritance of getting into heaven is of the law, is by our obedience to the law, then it's not a promise. It's not something God does then. But God gave it to Abraham by promise, not by law, not by works. So Paul has to answer the question, what purpose then does the law have? What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. And what does that mean? It was added because of transgressions. Okay? Um, what that's saying is that man is, is depraved and evil and, and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, and he also distorts what is right and what is wrong. God puts his law on the heart of everyone, but it's suppressed and twisted and distorted in all sorts of various ways. And people can harden their hearts and have consciences that are so seared that they, um, they think that evil is good and good is evil. So it was important that God give us a written, a written, fixed, unchangeable edition of his law so that we could go look at it uh, anytime people are suppressing it in odd ways. And it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. 
Is the law then against the promises of God? Okay, that's a good question. A lot of people think think it is, but it's not. He says, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Okay, but it, it can't do that. Why? The next verse says, says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Okay, there is no law that can give us life. Our obedience cannot bring eternal life to us. Cannot bring eternal life to us. Why? Because we're all under sin. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scripture has confined all under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ would be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Now that word that's used there, pedagogos, pedagogos, a, a tutor, guardian, a schoolmaster, a pedagogos in ancient Greek um, art was someone who followed your child around with a long stick. And when your child got out of line, he would, he would whack them with a stick. How does the law do that? It shows us our sin. The law shows us our sin. It is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster, our tutor to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. If you think that by your keeping of the law, you can get into heaven or that by in some partial way, your law keeping is going to get you into heaven. It's because you don't know what the law means. It's because you don't understand what it requires of us. Paul's already said, no one is justified by keeping the law. No one is. No one can be. So the law shows us our sin and drives us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Once the law has done that work on us and we put our faith in Christ, we're justified before God. The law doesn't have that that condemning power over us in the ultimate sense anymore. It always convicts us of sin. We're always guilty. And thus, it's always showing us our need for Jesus Christ. Uh, But it has lost its power to curse us after death. Okay, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's such a great statement. It's so simple and clear. And as opposed to, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ and keeping the law. Uh, He's not saying, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ and your fruit. It's not it either. It's only through faith. And as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What is baptism a sign of? The cleansing work of Jesus Christ. Even baptism preaches the gospel to us. Because do we add anything to our being washed in Christ? No, of course not. Baptism is a sign that points to the sprinkling of the blood of Christ and the cleansing from sin and the renewing of the Holy Spirit and and all those wonderful blessings. Baptism does not confer those things. It doesn't give those things automatically or anything like that. It's simply a seal of them. It's God putting his seal on those things. Um, but our faith always rests not on baptism, but on Christ. And this is pointing out what baptism is a sign of. Baptism is a sign that we have been clothed with the very righteousness of Christ by faith alone in him alone. And then verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, So there's no need for Gentiles to become Jews or to keep Jewish dietary laws, circumcision, um, or for anyone to try to get into heaven by keeping the moral law because it can't be done. 
it absolutely cannot be done, and it misunderstands completely why the law was given. We're told it was added because of transgressions to make clear what our suppression of the truth distorts, but it was also given to be a tutor. The law constantly shows us our need for Jesus Christ. Okay, in fact, I want to read a question from the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism. Because uh, there's a great uh, line here about why does God want the law preached. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, question. Um, this is Lord's Day 44. Since no one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? Answer. First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Isn't that a great answer? I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It's such a, such a treasure of God's truth. Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So our works, we don't begin in the spirit and then get into heaven by fruit. It's by faith in Christ and by faith in Christ alone. And if you say it's faith in Christ plus anything, then you've nullified God's promise. You've destroyed God's promise. Remember what verse 18 says? If the inheritance is based on law, if, it, if we inherit eternal life by our law-keeping in any way, it's not based on a promise then. But God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So what, what is the, what's the dime on the table here? What is this really all about? What, what does this really mean? When we evangelize, when we talk to people, when we try to help people see and understand who Jesus Christ is, we're calling people to abandon their confidence in anything in all of creation, in themselves, in their works, in what they do, what they will do, what they have done, and to put their hope of eternal life, their hope of going to heaven, their confidence for going to heaven on, on Jesus Christ and nothing else. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? It means to assent to the truth of the gospel. You believe that is true. And you're trusting in Christ's righteousness to be what is inspected on the day of judgment for your entrance into heaven. There's a judgment of works for rewards, but that reward is not salvation from sin. Uh, that reward is not justification before God. God gives us salvation by means of a promise, not by our works of the law. Okay, so that's Galatians 3. Wow, that took 35 minutes. Man, I just start talking and I lose track of time, big time. Um, all right, let me, let's see who's over here on the side. All right, there's Paul Garvey. Howdy, sir. The law tells us we are sinners and points us to our Savior. Praise his holy name. Amen, it does. It does that the day we're converted, and it does that every day after, and it does that the day we die, so that we're always resting on Jesus Christ and, and nothing else. New Reformation Apologetics. I love, love that screen name. Uh, good to see you here again. Stephanie Raphael. Same. Finally hit the notification bell. All right. Um, the law was a teacher giving knowledge of sin. Exactly. Okay. Aaron. 
a little off topic, but what's your thoughts on those who claim th- those claim Moses plagiarizes from Hammurabi's code? Um, well, let's see what New, Ar- New Reformation Apologetics says. Hammurabi's code was much more brutal and can scarcely be compared. Humans also have been given the ability to reason and perceive the will of God, though we suppress it. Yeah, I mean, man, man and his codes and his uh, laws that he writes, he's going to get some things right because he's made in God's image and the law is there. But yeah, uh, this whoever New Reformation Apologetics is, is exactly right. I mean, people look at the Old Testament, you know, it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Ooh, that's so mean. That's so brutal. But that was being said. What that's saying is that the punishment needs to fit the crime. That was a culture where um, you gave your life for a tooth. Uh, you gave your life for things that were small. Um, and the, the punishments often were grossly disproportionate uh, to the crimes themselves. But man's going to get a few things, right? I'm sure there are things. I mean, most cultures have laws against stealing. They understand that people can own things. Most uh, places have laws against murder and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's not plagiarized from anything. If anything, um, man, rebellious men, uh, plagiarize from God uh, because God puts those laws on, on his heart. Okay, the laws are very lopsided. Many laws only apply to classes or certain sexes. Yep, also certain people based on these factors were given harsher punishments. God hates uneven weights. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. Um, yep, yep, yep. All right, well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it off there, but I appreciate y'all. Um, sorry we didn't get a notification out. I probably should have done that. We're having a, a meeting. Uh, we have a denominational meeting today, actually starting in 21 minutes. So I need to uh, see if anyone's here at the church yet. We're doing that here. So anyway, hope uh, uh, hope y'all have a good rest of your week. I'm gonna. I really do want to try to put out some more content and some more material, and uh, try to to get more more stuff out there. And I would encourage you if you're a praying person uh, to pray for this Solas conference. Like this is something that's just not going out of my mind. I feel like we need to do that to try to do a Sola conference uh, or something. So I've been corresponding with some people who had some other ideas, but maybe we could start out doing an online conference or something. But I think that'd be really neat, really encouraging. And we, we definitely need it. We definitely really need that today. Anyway, uh, love you all. I thank you all for watching or for listening. Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at bridwellheightschurch.com where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at bridwellheightschurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.